You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Malah, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest, and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against Yahweh in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before Yahweh, and Yahweh said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Yahweh said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abiram, and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy, at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to Yahweh, saying, Let Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of Yahweh may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So Yahweh said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel obey, and he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before Yahweh. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as Yahweh commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him, and commissioned him as Yahweh directed through Moses.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 641 of this podcast. That was a reading from Numbers chapter 27 at the top of the episode, talking about the daughters of Zelophehad, also the succession of Joshua to leadership over this people, Israel. Leadership by example, and also a certain spokesmanship on the part of Moses is now being passed down to Joshua. And, you know, this is always an interesting kind of situation for a people to be in. It's always odd and surreal and significant when power and authority is passed from one man to his successor. In the case of the daughters of Zelophehad, though, let's talk about this man who had no sons and the conversation back and forth between these daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, and essentially, at root, God. Now, there's an intermediary. As per usual, there is Moses, and Moses is who they are speaking with directly But indirectly, they have to know, they do know, that Moses is going to take this before the Lord. And he's going to ask the Lord, what about these daughters of a man named Zelophehad? They have a fair question, God says. They make a good point. They're right, God says. You will give them possession. You will give them an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. God says these women are right. Why this is significant, why this is important is for those who are outside of the Judeo-Christian faith and tradition, for those who are hostile to Judaism on the one hand, in particular the Old Testament, and Christianity on the other hand, the Old Testament and New Testament, as we would say, of course, Jews would not call the Old Testament the Old Testament. They would say this is the Testament. More or less, they would say this is Torah. This is the law of God. This is the Nevi'im. This is the Ketuvim. This is the Tanakh. This is the law and the prophets. That's what they would say. But Christians would say we have the law and the prophets and we have the gospels and we have the epistles and all together, we have the whole counsel of God. All the same, to somebody who is an atheist or somebody who is a pagan, who is not a Jew and not a Christian, and they don't believe that the Bible is authoritative, at best, they maybe think it's an interesting book. It's a significant book, but it's not a true book. It's not accurate. Very often, what you'll find is for those who are not just outside, but they're hostile to the people of this book, they will say, You Jews and you Christians are misogynistic. You are biased against women. You denigrate women. You demean women. You don't see women as equal to men. And therefore, we know that yours is an unjust religion. Your religion is not just one that I reject personally. It's one that I want to have no influence in society. Can I just suggest for you, my listening audience, 
that passages like this here concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, passages like this have done a tremendous amount to protect and strengthen and bless women across the Western world, across the broader world, Western or otherwise, and in particular, passages like this concerning the daughters of Zelophehad have for centuries, have for millennia, led the devout followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to honor women, to protect women, to respect women. Here we have these women making a claim that is very fair. It's very balanced. God says it's very fair and very balanced for anybody who would be misogynistic and they have a bias against women. They don't like women. They hate women. They distrust women. Ho, 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 ho. They are also co-heirs. If they're in Christ, they're co-heirs. It might look different when women go bad, but men go bad. Women go bad. Also, women can do what is right. Remember in Proverbs, how we talked a while back through the woman folly and the woman wisdom. Both alike are presented and portrayed as women. On the one hand, you have the woman folly, who is loud and brash and beautiful, perhaps, seductive, perhaps, but she knows nothing. She doesn't know anything. In fact, she doesn't really do much either to earn what she has She entices, she manipulates, she cajoles, she steals, she incites others to steal. She is a wicked woman. She's folly, but folly very easily pairs with sin. And what are we warned? We're warned that the woman folly entices men and the men, the simple of the town, who come in and accept this invitation to dine with folly, they find that her house leads down to the grave. It's the entrance to Sheol. They don't know that on the front end. They could be warned if they were to accept the invitation from the woman wisdom, for instance. She's also calling to the simple, hey, come on over. I've prepared a meal. Let me teach you my ways. But that's just the point. The woman wisdom is also saying things. She's also doing things that have to do with having something like a party. But when she hosts a party or hostesses a party, I don't know if that's more correct, but if she invites you to a party she's hosting, she wants your good. She wants you to be wise. And what she does is she prepares the meal. She mixes the wine. This is her table. This is her house. She has means. And you know what? I think we see something of her kind in the daughters of Zelophehad. They aspire to have an inheritance. And this could be in a different context or in a different setting, a different place in the world, in a different culture. This could be taken as very bold and too bold, as a matter of fact. And this could be seized on in an exploitative way. But that's not what happens here. Moses dutifully takes the matter before the Lord and lets the Lord judge their case because apparently this is not typical. See, that's the point. This was not typical for 
daughters to be the inheritors. What would be more typical? Well, for instance, possibly you could have a situation where you say, if you want to inherit, you're going to have to get married, but your husband will inherit the property. That introduces some problems. For instance, if you're only marrying so that you get the inheritance, what if you're too desperate? What if you're in too much of a hurry and you marry some jerk? That's not good. (laughs) That's not what we want. We don't want to incentivize that unless you are the jerk. You're the guy who's not likely to be accepted and committed to. Otherwise, I suppose you make out well. But another thing that could happen very easily in a case like this is these women just get ignored. They just flat are tuned out when they say, our father died in the wilderness. We would like to inherit his possession. What would have gone to him? Not that they would necessarily be taken advantage of openly, publicly, explicitly in an official capacity, but unofficially, that's what would happen. Officially, they would be ignored because they're women. That was more typical. That's what it means for Moses to bring their case before the Lord. So what you have here too is you have an exception. Now the exception can only be an exception if there's a rule. And what is the rule? The rule is, if there are sons, the sons inherit the property. The sons inherit what was the father's. If there are no sons, we're told here, we're instructed by God, if there are no sons, then you can transfer the inheritance to his daughter. So then the next question is, well, what about the men who don't have a daughter either? They have no sons, they have no daughters, they have no children, they pass. Who do we give their inheritance to? Well, in that case, it goes to their brothers. What if they have no brothers? What if they were only children? Well, then the nearest kinsman. And what we have here, again, is, as in so many other cases in the Old Testament, we have order. God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. Now, sometimes God being a God of order can bother us because God is not ordering things the way that we would want, but we have to be very, very careful that we're not finding fault with God. We're not making a claim against the goodness and wisdom and justice of God, that's a road we don't want to go down. That's somewhere we don't want to be. God is ordering these things according to his eternal purposes and according to his deep and pervasive and comprehensive knowledge and understanding of how he made us, how the world works. It's a phrase we throw around very typically. We'll say, well, that's not how the world works when somebody proposes something that is far-fetched or it's going to be difficult or ah, that's not the way that's typically done, we'll say, well, that's not how the world works. You're being naive or foolish or what have you. Far be it from us to suggest that what God is prescribing here is not the way the world works. In actual fact, this is how the world works. This is how we work. This is how we're wired This is how God has put us together differently as men and women, that the men inherit the father's property. And this isn't just true in a material sense where land is concerned or a house is concerned or livestock is concerned or a certain amount of money is concerned. This is actually true with regards to our genetics. Now, just think about this with me for a moment. I'm reading this book as I mentioned in our last episode, 
about the history of Scotland from earliest times by Alastair Moffat. I'm reading this book or listening to this audiobook, more to the point, more precisely. And one of the very, very catching parts of the story thus far has had to do with genetic inheritance from fathers to sons and how we can find, geneticists can find in the British Isles, in certain parts of Scotland, various parts have different situations, different findings, but we can find traces in the genetic code very easily of the Norse, of more specifically the Vikings who came into Scotland, pillaging, raiding, slaving, in some cases, settling down, trying to farm, trying to set up little fiefdoms for themselves, little kingdoms for themselves, but very often fighting with the Scotsmen. And also, let's be real about the history of civilization and the history of warfare. When they could, they were very often taking the women either with or without consent. And what resulted from those unions? Children, offspring, sons and daughters. Those sons and daughters do not get the same inheritance, but the sons in particular are inheriting a certain special something from their father and their father's father and their father's father's father via the Y chromosome. The daughters don't get the Y chromosome. And you might think, well, what's the difference, right? What's the difference? In our day, we think there is very little to no difference. And actually, there is quite a lot of difference. I would love to do an episode all about this, but suffice to say for right now, just because these sons get that Y chromosome from their father and they also inherit his property after he passes... That doesn't mean that daughters are worthless or that we don't care about daughters or they don't matter or we devalue them or we dishonor them. No, 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 no. But what's the expectation, right? The expectation is this is part of why we should be giving our daughters in marriage. We give our daughters in marriage, hopefully to a good, honorable, upright, wise, hardworking, brave intrepid young man at the proper time. We give our daughter in marriage at some point and who is taking care of her, who is providing for her on one level, she herself, if she is following after the woman wisdom, but in another sense, in terms of interpersonal relationships, it is first and foremost, her husband. The sons, on the other hand, they are expected As the rule, and there are exceptions, but as the rule, they're expected to take wives and have sons and daughters after them. And what would go a long ways to these sons having households, raising families, being able to provide and protect, put simply, having property, having land to make productive, having a home to raise the family in having some money to invest in a business or to start a business. And so that's why the inheritance is going to the man, in part because he's already inheriting something special in the way of this Y chromosome, something that his sister 
if he has a sister, is not inheriting. But for another thing, he is also expected to be the provider and protector, first and foremost, chiefly over his own household, his own wife, his own children. And that's why he is going to be the one inheriting. Now, in the case of these daughters of Zelophehad, maybe they're married. Maybe they get married. And then what? If their husbands have some property and they have some property, they might have to figure some things out. Maybe they have two properties that are not adjacent. Hard telling. But they have standing, particularly if this is an argument made on behalf of their father who has passed. So they're honoring their father in this case. And that is looked on very favorably. And as it should, it should be a good thing that they are wanting to preserve his memory in the land, and they are wanting him, even though he's passed, to be remembered by way of having a possession, having an inheritance in this promised land. Now, if we continue on down past the daughters of Zelophehad, we have Joshua, who is going to take over for Moses. But we have before that God reiterating to Moses that he is not going into the promised land, but God is going to take him up on the mountain and he will be allowed to see this promised land. And God reminds him, lest he has forgotten, God reminds Moses why this is the consequence. What was the behavior? What was the attitude of the heart? More to the point, more to the point, what was the reason for God telling Moses he would not see the promised land? Here you go. Remember Moses? And we could read this a lot of ways. We could read this as an angry reminder. We could read this as just a very matter-of-fact reminder. We could read this as a compassionate reminder. I don't know what the best way to read this is, personally. What I know is what the text tells me, and that is that God takes Moses up and shows him the land that he will not be entering into. And so maybe there's a certain aspect in which even just to see it from a distance, is something. It's a mercy. Maybe there's a certain compassionate quality to this. Maybe there's a certain stern quality to this because God is holy and because Moses did transgress. And who knows? God knows, right? A rhetorical question, but the answer is clear. Who knows what is in Moses' heart right now? Is there bitterness? Is there anger? Is there frustration? Is there confusion? Maybe the most compassionate thing, the most loving, kind thing from God in this moment is to remind Moses, in case he's forgotten, many a sleepless night, tossing and turning, replaying everything back in his head, in case he's told himself a certain story that is not actually what happened and how this went down, God is there to tell him why these are the consequences why he is not going to be able to see the promised land. But to Moses' credit, his first question here, his first inquiry, his first interest here is, who will succeed me? Who is going to go out and come back in before them? Who will lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of Yahweh may not be as sheep that have no shepherd? Verse 17, God has an answer. It's going to be Joshua. God answers that question, just like God answers the question of what to do with 
these daughters of the man who died in the wilderness for his own sin. He wasn't caught up in Korah's rebellion, but he had sin of his own. Less well-known, it didn't make the history books, but it was significant, and he died for it. In both the question of succession and in the question of these daughters of Zelophehad, God is deciding, God is choosing what the outcome will be. And Moses is giving that over to God as he ought to, as is appropriate. And maybe this is contrition. Maybe this is Moses as aged as he is. Maybe this is Moses growing as a person, maturing as a person, growing in his relationship with his faith in God. As we will find soon as we get into Joshua taking over the mantle, the story is about to get a lot more exciting in certain ways. If you like battle, if you like war, the story of the Israelites as Joshua is leading them is about to get a lot more exciting for you. You're going to enjoy it. Now, if you don't like all the battle stuff and the fighting, well, don't know what, I don't know what to tell you. It's in there. It's in there. It's in the text. We still need to read it. We still need to study it. We still need to understand how it reflects on the character of God and what it tells us about the character of man. It's important for us to recognize Joshua has a certain characteristic and a certain quality, and that quality and that characteristic is important for what they're just about to go into. He has the temperament and the mindset, and God calls him to the expression of that, as we will see here shortly, continuing on into Numbers and beyond. For our first bit of current events discussion, though, in this episode, I would draw your attention to a story by John Doolin, published on MSN.com, from Money Smart Guides, saying goodbye to boomer traditions, 10 trends millennials refuse to follow. Now, boomers here is a reference to the generation that was born to the GIs coming back from fighting in World War II or immediately after World War II, there was a big baby boom, which is interesting. It's interesting that there was this sudden increase in babies being born after World War II. But what about that generation? How has that generation worked out? How have they turned out? You might make an argument that the baby boomers have caused the major mess in this country. And the millennials in particular, as much as my generation, I am part of the millennial generation, you've got the baby boomers, and then you've got the so-called lost generation, also known as Gen X, Sulfur X is the joke there on them, unfortunately. And then you have the millennials. And then after the millennials is the generation Z and after Generation Z is what they call Generation Alpha. But the boomers have a certain culture that is common to their generation. This is not necessarily <laughs> to say all of what we think about boomers, all of what we think about millennials, all of what we think about Gen X, all of what we think about Gen Z is quite correct. Take it with a grain of salt, the observations and reflections and wisdom of those who are not God's people, but Neil Howe, William Strauss 
have a couple of excellent books, very interesting, very fascinating books on the subject of American generations, including the boomers, including the millennials, including Gen X, including Gen Z, lots of predictions in their book called Generations and their follow-up book, The Fourth Turning. But they would say the boomers have helped to contribute to and lead us to a point of crisis right now. And they were saying this back in the 90s. They were predicting it based on a certain kind of sine wave perspective on a repeating pattern of generations, generational trends, general temperaments that are common, general sensibilities and outlooks on life that are common to generations in a repeating pattern. Millennials, it should be noted, have a lot more in common with the GI generation, the greatest generation so-called. I wouldn't call them the greatest generation, but if they called themselves that, maybe we have some idea of how the boomers were raised, how they were set up. Part of where they're coming from is this insecurity of the preceding generation, the parents' generation, overshadowing them and having, in some sense, overwhelmed them in their younger days. But now the millennials, in many cases, regard the boomers much the way that the boomers regarded the GI generation, stifling in different ways, right? There are different ways that we are constrained, I would say, socially, we have a huge mess with feminism having given way to the homosexual push and the transgenderism moment that we're in right now. Consider COVID, consider that we are on the verge of a war with China and Russia over Ukraine and Taiwan. Millennials are different than boomers. Millennials, according to John Doolin, are rejecting and refusing to follow 10 trends that were common to boomers. And I'm going to read these for you, and I think that they're interesting, and you may find them interesting as well. Some food for thought here. First up, useless junk. Millennials are smart when it comes to limiting the purchasing of junk. Since money is tight, thanks to the boomers in large part, by the way, Since money is tight, they only buy things they need and a few things they want. They see big houses as a waste as rooms are filled with useless stuff that never gets used. One person pointed out how many houses in their neighborhood have cars parked in the driveway or the street, not the garage. This is because the garages are overfilled with useless stuff. Now, I would say my situation's a bit different. My wife's in my situation, being parents to eight children with a ninth on the way. We have a relatively small house compared with the number of people. We're filling these rooms, yes, with stuff, but people, little people, homemade people, (laughs) we made them ourselves with God's help, but also the stuff that goes along with those little people, bigger and bigger every day. But generally speaking, our house is not what I grew up in, what my wife grew up in, what we grew up seeing as more common, our house is not filled with useless junk and stuff that we just can't throw away. In fact, we're trying to break ourselves of the habit. We're trying to wean ourselves off of this habit of holding on to things. You know, if it's broken and it can't be repaired, let's just toss it. If we don't use it, but it had a use at one point, but that use is past now, and now we need the space more than we need this thing, let's find somebody we can give this to. Let's see if we can sell it. Let's see if we can throw it away even. 
if it's not worth giving away or selling just so we can free up the space. Let's have less clutter so we can focus more on what we regard as most important. Cable TV. Cable TV is another thing that millennials are rejecting. Boomers, big on cable TV. Millennials, like myself, more likely to say, yeah, you know what? We don't need cable TV. It's too expensive. I would rather have a streaming service or I would rather make use of my internet savvy to go and find what I want to watch on the internet. We'll do Amazon Prime and we'll watch videos on Amazon Prime. And if we want to if we want to watch a movie that you have to buy or rent, we're going to buy or rent it probably on Amazon. And then we don't have to worry about returning it or having late fees because we forgot to return it on time. Or if we buy it, we don't have to worry about the disc getting scratched and destroyed. It's just right there. It's right there. We can find it again anytime we want. Watch it again. So also with the kids. That's different than the boomer generation. The boomer generation, by the way, we should note watching a whole lot of cable TV, a whole lot of programming that included lots of advertising. The boomer generation was conditioned and programmed themselves differently by watching so much of so few channels for so much of their lives. Millennials, much more of a choose-your-own-adventure when it comes to media consumption, thanks to the internet. Live to work. Here's another difference, another Contrast, according to John Doolin, boomers and Gen Xers, he writes, are known for working hard to get ahead. Not only do they want to earn an income to support themselves, but they also want to climb the corporate ladder. Millennials, on the other hand, don't aspire to these beliefs. They see that corporations are only in it for themselves and have no loyalty to their employees, regardless of whether they are top performers. Now, let's just pause a moment to think about who typically has the most power in corporations. It's typically the boomers who haven't retired yet or who own a large share in those corporations and therefore hold sway on ultimate management decisions. They're the ones you have to please. They're the ones you have to impress if you're concerned about shareholders and stockholders, etc. in the majority of cases still. But then you've got Gen X as well. Gen X, the most aborted generation in American history, And those who weren't aborted were in many cases neglected. They were latchkey kids who were just told, stay out of the way. Stay out of the way. You guys are bad seed. You're a bad crop of kids. The Gen Xers, as they've gotten older, my view is they have inherited quite a lot from the boomers based on which of the Gen Xers were willing to enact the vision of the boomers, the the vision that the boomers had of themselves and their tireless campaign to measure up to the greatest generation, the GI generation, or to surpass them. Even greater greatest generation is what the boomers typically aspire to be. Gen Xers and boomers in charge of many corporations, they manage those corporations as if they are living out this generational archetype that's common to each. And millennials in very many cases are resented, I would say, by the Gen Xers because in contrast, they were overprotected. These millennials like myself were overprotected by many boomers, many of the oldest Gen Xers and the youngest boomers who waited to have kids, or maybe they aborted kids earlier. 
And then when they finally did have a child, when they thought that they were ready to have children, what did they do? They smothered those children. They protected them from everything. Even if protecting the millennials in my generation from everything was a handicap and more of a liability at a certain point than it was an asset, you couldn't reason with this asthmatic, hyperactive, hypersensitive concern for danger. And ultimately, I would say at root, a unhealthy demand to be in control at all times. It was billed as being protective, but what it really boiled down to was an excuse to be control freaks. Millennials, like myself, from my perspective, look at that trend in corporate America, which is a passing trend. It will pass with the generations who are in charge. Corporate culture will look very different when the Gen Xers get old and retire, when the boomers have retired or else passed away. Millennials, in the meantime, are absolutely tired of, fed up with, sick of being protected from success. Ah, <laughs> uh, you wouldn't know what to do with that. No, no, no. Give, give to daddy. Give to Gen X. Give to the boomers. They know what to do with it. Oh, you millennials, you don't have any idea. Yeah, at a certain point, the millennials are just like, ah, this is dumb. This is stupid and fruitless. And yeah, no thanks. That's my take. That is my take. That is my observation. Having worked in corporate America, it is typically those middle-level and upper-level managers who are making the mercenary, cold, calculating, and in many cases, heartless decisions that they think are better for the bottom line. They claim they are better for the bottom line. They're protecting the company, right? You know, instead of protecting the millennial generation in a context of the home, they're protecting the corporation. But in actual fact, in many cases, what it is, is it's just self-serving. It's a fear of taking a risk of things not being under their direct control all the time, even if the potential for reward and the long-term benefits across the organization would be much, much greater. Nope. They're not going to risk their career. They're not going to risk their reputation. They're not going to risk their losing some power and authority here. Nope. Noom, 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 noom. No, we're not doing that. If the boomers pass on from having any influence over these corporations, it'll be very interesting to see what the Gen Xers do with being in charge. Once the mantle has fully been passed, and they're not even just getting behind the scenes, thumbs up, thumbs down, or else I'll pull my capital, it'll be very interesting to see what the Gen Xers do, but it'll also be very interesting to see what my generation, the millennials do. We outnumber, you know, just like the boomers far and away outnumber the Gen Xers due to abortion and birth control. The millennials far and away outnumber the Gen Xers. And we have a different psychological makeup from having been overprotected. We have hit critical mass, maximum saturation on the, well, we're protecting you line. Yeah. We've seen ourselves be protected right out of being able to buy homes and be debt-free and save for retirement and <laughs> get promoted uh, unless we're willing to kowtow and kiss rings and all that, which in many cases, we're just not. We're not willing to do that, but we won't have to forever. There will come a time when the boomers are gone and it's just the Gen Xers and the millennials and 
What I predict is the Gen Xers are going to transfer their neediness and their dependence from the boomers. When the boomers are no longer there to depend on, they're going to transfer that to the millennials, oddly enough, and the millennials are going to run with it because they have all this pent up demand for independence and making decisions and not avoiding risk all the time, not avoiding risk at every turn. And I think what you'll see is you'll see an explosion of innovation, growth, development, enthusiasm. And once the Gen Xers lose the ball, I think they're going to not get it back, except in rare cases. I think the millennials, once we have the ball, we're going to run with it. And and then multi-generationally thinking forward, thinking forward to how millennials will relate to Gen Z and Generation Alpha, the big thing my generation is going to have to be careful about is to not repeat the mistakes of the GI generation, to not just make Gen Z and Gen Alpha into the equivalent of the boomers psychologically and socially. Next up, the wedding industry. Millennials are getting married when they're older and throwing out many of the traditions that come with weddings. This includes getting married in a church, dressing in a certain way, having lavish receptions and more. Again, I would say this is a bit more to do with the boomers being very about themselves. They have a higher appetite for the big lavish uh, celebrations, getting super dressed up. And why is that? Because they're not celebrating the institution of marriage first and foremost. In so many cases, they're celebrating themselves. And even when they're paying for a wedding for their adult children, it's a celebration of the boomers, the boomer parents, tragically, unfortunately, nauseatingly. Not trying to step on toes here. I'm just, I'm trying to call it like I see it here. And I think I'm right, of course. But millennials not going all in for so much of that is also partly an expression of money being tight because the boomers have lavished so much on themselves. They have kept so much for themselves in their relentless, tireless pursuit of self-actualizing and trying to surpass the greatest generation. And so there's not as much left over for the millennials to be lavish. And oh, by the way, too, the way the boomers have carried on, us millennials, in many cases, have a bad taste in our mouth. Just like filling our houses with useless stuff, there's so much of this vanity of vanities that we're looking at and we're just like, ew, no, that's not my idea of a good time. I think that would ruin the moment. That is the opposite of what I want is to be self-glorifying in this moment of intimacy as I am exchanging vows with my beloved. I don't want that. No, no, no. No, no, no. That's not what we're about. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to go a different direction here. Now, what's interesting is uh, there's an additional item here. We talked about cable TV subscriptions. Millennials are not interested in them. Boomers have loved them for a long, long time. Cable news in particular, as a subset, is mentioned by John Doolin. And he points out that just as subscribers to cable TV are falling, so is viewership to cable news. This is for a few reasons. First, millennials don't want to sit down at a specific time to watch a news broadcast. Another reason is the rise of independent media. Millennials are trusting these sources for their news and information more and more as they feel they get a complete picture of the story, not a one-sided angle. Now, why this is significant is also 
you have to understand, as a subset of the millennials having been overprotected by the boomers. We as millennials don't trust the handsome or pretty face on the cable news show with a big expensive set behind them with a whole team of writers who populates the teleprompter with the right words and what's to say next. And, oh, you should probably cut to commercial break so your guest here doesn't get to say the next thing, which we know they're about to say, which we don't want people to hear. The cable news is a great illustration of what's wrong with the boomer generation, overprotecting, as they claim, but actually really more to the point, controlling the people around them and the people who are under them. And the millennials, like myself, are not interested in being overprotected, protected from life itself. We're not interested in that anymore. And so actually what we want most is to be protected from the people who are so controlling that they're smothering, that they're stifling, that they're suffocating all the opportunity. They're taking all the joy out of life. And also they have, to a great extent, pissed away our inheritance. Phil, forgive my language. Millennials are turning to independent news sources because we want to be protected from those who claim to be protecting us. More to the point, we want to be protected from people who insist on making all of our decisions for us forever and ever and ever because actually they're about themselves. They want to take credit when it goes well. They want to blame us when it goes poorly. Enough of that. We'll turn on some independent news source in between our two jobs, (laughs) our main job and our side hustle. We'll turn on some independent news to be informed by somebody who's not trying to control and manipulate us, as is so often the case. And it would turn out, as we'll talk about later in this episode with regards to Fox News, as all of the corporate media is bent on doing, controlling and manipulating us. No, no. Let me listen to somebody who is trying to protect me from the people who are trying to control and manipulate me at every turn, on every issue, on every topic. Next up, pet food brands. This one's kind of silly. Millennials love their pets, and it shows in the sales decline of major pet food brands. Just like this group is more proactive about the healthy food they put into their bodies, they are keenly aware of what they put into their furry friends. As a result, millennials are opting for smaller pet food brands that focus on natural, healthy ingredients. Next up, diamond industry. Many might think this industry is in decline because younger generations are putting off marriage, but this isn't the main reason. It's that millennials have issues with the sourcing of diamonds. They don't like the treatment of workers who mine the gem, And they realize the only reason a diamond is valuable is that where it comes from has regulations that limit mining to keep the price high. Now, that could be a reason. That could be. I don't buy it. No pun intended. I don't think that's the primary reason. I think that the primary reason has everything to do with the boomers having so organized and arranged society as to protect (laughs) the millennials from uh, prosperity. I think that's actually more what is driving the decline in diamond sales. If you can't afford to buy a home and get married and have kids as a millennial, how in the world are you going to afford to buy a diamond ring? How are you going to do that? That's what this has more to do with, I would say, but also as well, the insistence in the older generation and the boomer generation on the diamond ring, the big flashy diamond, that insistence is just of a piece with 
the overall gaudiness and ostentatiousness and self-absorption that we associate with baby boomers in many cases. Uh, Next up, ironing clothes. Who has time to iron clothes? Not millennials. (laughs) Not when we have a full-time job and a side hustle. There are a few reasons for the lack of ironing, the most significant being that many workplaces are switching to casual attire from business attire. Also, the increase in work-from-home jobs has an impact. So does technology. More and more clothes are made with fabrics that resist wrinkles, making ironing unnecessary. Now, the older generation would say, oh, those millennials are so lazy. Man, so lazy. Making clothes that you don't need to iron. Like, it doesn't take that long to iron your clothes. Like, when I was a kid... We ironed everything. We ironed all of it. We ironed our underwear and our socks. You know, these millennials, they won't work for anything. And you know what it actually is? You know, what it actually is, is we as millennials are trying to be efficient with our time because we have precious little of it. We're trying to be as efficient with our time as we possibly can. If I'm podcasting and writing and reading and I have a full-time job and all throughout doing all of those things. I have a wife. I have eight children. I help with various ministries at church. I have friends to check on. I have family to check on. I don't have time to iron clothes. I need clothes that iron themselves or that don't need ironed. That's what I need so that I have time to attend to more profitable work because my work over the course of my working life to this point is less and less profitable. And so I need to be as efficient as possible with it, as efficient as possible so I can get as much profit and just try to stay ahead of the rate of inflation as these boomers are printing money like it's going out of style. Wine with corks. Here's another thing. I wouldn't have thought of it, but there you go. If you have made it this far, you can spot a trend with millennials. Everything they do is to make life easier, not harder. Wine falls right into this. Millennials do not buy wine with corks because they don't want to go through the trouble of uncorking it. Instead, they opt for a wine with screw caps. Now, I, I'll i be the difference here. If I buy a bottle of wine, I'm not concerned first and foremost with whether there's a cork in the top. I'm concerned first and foremost with, is this a wine that my wife and or myself are going to enjoy? Not when she's pregnant. I'll drink it in that case. But is this a wine that's delicious and good quality and special because we're going to drink wine only on special occasions probably. The wine with the corks thing though is interesting because it actually does sound quite a lot like the millennials have a theme going with not wanting to iron clothes and also not watching cable news, not wanting to sit down at a certain particular set time, wanting to get independent news. I think all of this is of a piece with trying to be as efficient as possible and independent as possible, but also trying to maximize the expenditure of energy. And oh, by the way, this is also a different thing common to how millennials were raised in many cases, just as we were overprotected. The latchkey Gen X generation, they were sent out, hey, you know what? Go on out. Don't come back until it's dark out, mom and dad said. In the case of many of the millennials, it was, no, you can't go out because stranger danger, because something bad might happen. Somebody might abduct you. You might get into trouble. More to the point, you might make work for mom and dad. And so we're just going to keep you home. We don't want the fuss. We don't want to deal with that. So we're going to find the easy button and we're going to put this millennial generation in front of some video games. 
Maybe TV, maybe some movies, maybe some video games, maybe some Lego. Something that's going to keep you occupied at home where we can see you, where you're not getting into things that are going to make trouble for us. So let's just think about this for a moment. How much of the millennial generational archetype wanting to look for the easy option, the efficient option, but the low fuss option is also that. We were trained up to do the easy option by the boomers. And so also, we've been trained up in the way that they thought we should go. And now that we're older, we're not departing from it in many cases. Not at all, but wine, maybe that was special for the boomers. And that was part of the showing off. That's of a piece with the diamond ring and the big expensive wedding parties and the very fancy clothes that you wear to the wedding parties. But this wine and the popping of the cork, if that's a showing off thing, a lot of millennials are just like, you know, I skip that. I don't need the showing off. I'm here for the wine, actually. And I don't have all day. I don't have all day. I need to get to my other job. Just got off work at this job, but I need to do my side hustle. In short, last but not least, doorbells. Well, most all homes still have doorbells, you are unlikely to spot a millennial ringing one. When they arrive at a house, they instinctively pull out their phone and text that they're there. I don't know that that's true. I don't, unless the doorbell has run out of batteries. If the doorbell has run out of batteries and nobody's answering the door because they're busy with their side hustle or they're in the back getting something cleaned up or they're listening to some music or whatever, then I will text or then I will call and I'll say, yep, I'm here. And I suppose the older generation that didn't grow up with cell phones and smartphones maybe doesn't think to do that first and foremost. Their fancy new tech was the doorbell. Our fancy new tech is the smartphone. And so, yeah, maybe you do. I don't typically, but nevertheless, there you go. There are some differences between the boomers and the millennials. You're welcome. Some food for thought. Hopefully you found that interesting. I found it interesting. And maybe it changes the way we relate. Maybe it changes the way we think about our opportunities and what the Lord would have for us moving forward. Maybe there's a rather too limited, rather too truncated view in many cases as to what the Lord might do with our country because so many of us are thinking we're limited to doing what has been done. No, no. Even if it's something as simple as coming up with a shirt that doesn't need to be ironed, it looks great, but it doesn't need to be ironed. Even if it comes to, hey, I'm going to watch some independent news Things like that can add up to big gains and major breakthroughs. And that's what I'm hoping for as a millennial myself. I'm hoping that my generation steps up to the plate and that God works and moves to accomplish a major revival, a major repentance generationally, where we repent of being about ourselves, being hubristic, being self-absorbed, being egotistical, being self-willed, stiff-necked, disobedient. We repent of that and we turn to the Lord. We seek his face and he forgives us our sins and heals our land. That's what I am hoping and praying for. There will be a need for that in the coming years, more obviously as the boomers pass on and the Gen Xers don't have the boomers there to hold their hands and tell them, Okay, now do this and now do this. And yes, you know, just like Moses is going to the Lord with decision after decision, 
in many of the cases with the Gen Xers, they're used to being able to go to or having the boomers come to them and say, all right, now I want you to do this. It won't be the case for so much longer, really. And when it's not the case anymore, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. In other news, let's talk about a write-up over at Not The Bee by Peter Heck. You realize that pushing to trans the kids is conversion therapy, right? That's the title of his piece over at Not The Bee. And here, what he does is he brings up a attack that was leveled against former Vice President Mike Pence when he very first took the oath of office and started his first term, his only term as vice president. Now he's running for president and Peter Heck is pointing out that it's likely if he starts to gain any momentum at all, the news media, the corporate media, the left in every institution is going to trot out old attacks on him. Like for instance, this ABC story, which I will quote for you. As a candidate for Congress in the 1990s, Pence's campaign website included a statement that fueled belief that he was in support of conversion therapies for gay youths. Quote, resources should be directed toward those institutions which provide assistance to those seeking to change their sexual behavior, the website said under a header reading, The Pence Agenda. End quote. Now, what Peter Heck does in this piece, which you can read in full for yourself, I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time, but I'll, I'll put a link in the episode description for this episode. What Peter Heck points out here is that whole conversion therapy thing is exactly what the left has been doing with kids in the American public schools, in American colleges, and American universities. It's what they've been doing, except they've been doing the conversion therapy thing in the other direction, converting straight boys and girls into uh, homosexuals, converting what they call a cisgendered boy or a cisgendered girl into a transgendered boy and girl or girl and boy. It's conversion therapy. Now, what are they being converted to more broadly? Not, not just same-sex attraction, not just transgenderism in so many cases. Fully one quarter of American school-aged children are now reporting that they are gay, bi, trans, queer, non-binary. More to the point, more importantly for the conversion therapists on the left is they're converting these kids into Democrat voters into little little leftists, uh, really. And whatever harm is done to these kids is worth it as the radical left sees it because this is for the greater good. So whatever is done to the individual, however destabilized, however hurt, however traumatized, however confused, however sidelined, however robbed they are of the fullness and joy of life and profitable choices and enjoyable experiences being as God made them to be, male and female, getting married, having kids of their own. Whatever is robbed of them 
is worth it to these radical leftists who want nothing more than to self-actualize themselves in pursuing their leftist vision, their utopian vision. And an interesting reference you might enjoy and benefit from, you might find uh, very instructive here in this context, is a docu-series that was put out by the BBC a number of years ago, I think it was early 2000s, called The Century of the Self. The Century of the Self is a docu-series about the life and legacy and work of Edward Bernays, double first nephew to Sigmund Freud. Edward Bernays is the one we can credit or else blame for uh, public relations as a profession, modern advertising as we know it, the power of the soft sell, the power of suggestion, working off of impressions, creating negative association and positive association with brands and political parties and political platforms and products and services to engineer choice among the masses. Century of the Self would be an excellent resource if you're trying to understand very much along the lines of Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But from the BBC, before the woke stuff really, really kicked into high gear like it has in recent years. But Peter Heck, he makes an excellent point here when he says that this push for transing the kids and giving the kids comprehensive sex education, giving the kids puberty blockers, giving the kids sex change operations, giving the kids preferred pronouns and demanding that everybody else affirm those is conversion therapy. And can I just suggest to you that this is also an expression of what we were just talking about with the legacy of the boomers in this country. The push here is entirely driven by the ambition of the adults. It's the adults telling these children what would make those adults very happy. And it's in many cases, these kids then responding to what has been either affirmed or stigmatized. It is adults of a certain generation who kicked this off because they wanted the sexual revolution. They wanted free love and they wanted freedom from consequences, except in a time and manner of their choosing. And it was all about themselves. When they got married, whether they got married, if they got divorced and remarried without consequence, if they had unprotected, casual sex without consequences. That's how they wanted it. And they accomplished this by legalizing birth control and abortion. Interestingly enough, as the baby boomers were coming of age. And this is a very curious thing to see now that the baby boomer generation by and large is old enough to be grandparents. If they had a few kids, if they had one or two kids, 
Now they have grandkids as well, but their kids after them are in too many cases doing the overprotective thing or allowing the overprotective thing to continue on. It's the Biden administration. Biden is a baby boomer through and through. It's the Biden administration pushing this. It was the Obama-Biden administration pushing this on the country and on the world. Let's remember that. But it is conversion therapy. It is conversion therapy as a means to the end of achieving and maximizing and securing wealth and political power. I predict that it's not going to be all that much longer. It's going to be a few years when we have more and more extreme examples and statistics. We'll have a lot more anecdotes, but we'll also have a lot more shocking statistics because the trend is not going in the right direction. It's getting worse. We're going to see the carnage caused and we're going to hear the kinds of arguments being made. And as the boomers are less and less there to offer reprisals to those who would disagree with them or do something that they haven't controlled and they haven't decreed. As the boomers are less and less there to oppress the younger generations in their relentless and tireless pursuit of self-actualization, what we will find is, oh my word, wow, it was staring us in the face all along This was the same song played over and over and over again for decades as the boomers were living out their rebelliousness, their resentment for the GI generation being considered the greatest and better. You know, battle-tested, celebrated with parades. And interestingly, you know what's interesting is when the baby boomers took power, what did we stop seeing so much of like we had after World War II? We stopped seeing so much of the parades to celebrate returning soldiers, sailors, airmen from war zones. We stopped seeing the public celebration. Why is that? Is it possibly because the boomer generation resents the lavish parades and celebrations that were held for the GI generation coming back from World War II? Is that possibly, maybe, just maybe, part of it? Are they trying to tear down, really, and make better and build better what the greatest generation built and protected and served for? Because at root, they resent that generation. They resent the generation of their parents for being so pushy, for being so dominant. You know, if you go back and you look at the type of Hollywood actor, for instance, the leading man in many of the Hollywood Hollywood movies that were made back in the 50s, what you'll see is chiseled jaws, straight back, broad shoulders, chest out, Confident, steely gaze, gravitas. 
I'm thinking Paul Newman. I'm thinking Charlton Heston. I'm thinking men who had gone off to World War II. And they were the type of men that men who had been off in Europe and in the Pacific came back home and respected because they had served alongside that kind of man. And they thought, yeah, that guy, that guy is the kind of guy you want to be fighting alongside or serving under as an officer or a general. And then what happened, right? What was the rebellion? What was the rebellion? As the boomers came of age, they wanted long hair and increasingly effeminate or ambiguous expressions of masculinity. Into the 70s and the 80s, you have an increasingly androgynous. What is that? It's an expression of resentment towards the male ideal that they couldn't measure up to coming back from World War II. And then on into the 90s. Now, now the rebels were the man. (laughs) Now the boomers were getting their shot. They were getting their chance. And what did they do with it? We got Bill Clinton, followed by George W. And what was George W. doing? He did the no child left behind thing. Okay, that seems on the face of it to be noble, but then it actually created a whole lot of problems. You have the war on terror, which wasn't content to just eliminate the enemy's capacity to do harm to the American people. No, no. We all had to be protected from making any unknown choice, saying any unknown thing that the national security apparatus couldn't monitor and control. And it's a hop, skip, and a jump from that to then exploiting this insider information. The I'm protecting you, this is for your own good, very, very easily turns to, well, maybe I'll just take that. Maybe I'll just stop this. And pretty soon you have an Obama in the White House. And what's he doing? He's taking that torch from the Bill Clinton mindset and he's carrying it forward into the gay community. And now you've got Biden picking up the torch from Obama. Obama handed off the baton to Biden and Biden is carrying it forward with the trans thing. And it's all a rebellion ultimately against God, but insofar as what was more typical earlier in the century was a desire for manly independence, strength, character, fighting for your country. Ah, We need to denigrate that. Insofar as the ideal was you're going to come home from war, get married, have a family, raise your kids, taking them to church. No, no. Let's do the opposite. Let's lock it down. And the COVID business, the COVID business is proof positive that this pretending at protecting us actually conceals more and more thinly a desire to control so as to exploit, so as to use. Once the jig is up, there's no going back. Once people are on to that, 
There's no going back. And anything could happen. Anything could happen. We could have a major societal transformation once the jig is up on where this conversion therapy thing came from, that it damaged so many young men and so many young women. Once the jig is up on where this actually came from, where the progression of ideas can trace its root to, anything could happen societally. We could have major, major overhauls of our institutions. What we should hope for and pray for and work for and think about long and hard is how do we make sure that those transformations, when they come, not if they come, when they come, are God-honoring and profitable and blessed by God. To help illustrate this point, and so that you're not just hearing it from me and from the people I'm quoting selectively, I will play cut one for you. This from episode four of Tucker on Twitter, where he's talking about this recent incident where a Fox News Chiron referred to Joe Biden as a wannabe dictator. (laughs) I won't introduce it any more than that. I'll just play this audio for you, and then I will share my thoughts in response to what Tucker Carlson has to say here. Here it is. Take a listen. Cut one. Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. On Tuesday afternoon, the Biden administration had Donald Trump arrested. It was a pretty big news story. You may have seen it. Just before 9 p.m. that night, as part of its coverage, Fox News ran two live video feeds next to one another. On the right, Donald Trump addressed his supporters in New Jersey. On the left, Joe Biden spoke at an event for the Secretary General of NATO in Washington. Beneath those videos at the bottom of the screen, Fox's banner read this way, quote, wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. Those words were up for less than 30 seconds, but the effect was immediate. Inside Fox, the women who run the network panicked. First, they scolded the producer who put the banner on the screen. Less than 24 hours after that, he resigned. He'd been at Fox for more than a decade. He was considered one of the most capable people in the building. He offered to stay for the customary two weeks, but Fox told him to clear out his desk and leave immediately. Then the company issued a public apology for the 27-second-long wannabe dictator line. Quote, the Chiron was taken down immediately, Fox's PR department said, and then added ominously it was, quote, addressed. That was all true. But it was not enough to save Fox News from the ensuing scandal. For a time in the rest of the media, Fox's assessment of Donald Trump's arrest seemed to overshadow Trump's arrest itself. Suggesting that Biden is a dictator, declared the Washington Post, quote, cross the line. Alexander Vindman agreed strongly. Vindman is the perennial MSNBC guest and full-time Ukraine promoter you may remember from Russiagate. On Twitter, he demanded that the Pentagon pull Fox News from all military bases. It is, quote, absolutely unacceptable for American Forces Network to carry programming that directly, spuriously, attacks the commander-in-chief of American Armed Forces, Vindman wrote. In other words, Joe Biden must ban all criticism of himself because that's what non-dictators do. John Cusack went further still. For the crime of calling Biden a dictator, Fox should be shut down wrote the 80s-era movie star. Quote, the government has to take away their broadcasting license. And so on. It was all over the internet. Democrats were very, very angry. But why were they angry? 
If the banner on Fox was false, why the hysteria? Lies don't seem to bother anyone anymore. If some cable news producer had called Joe Biden a genius or accused him of being secretly Sudanese, would anyone be yelling about it? Would Fox News have apologized for it? Probably not. But calling Joe Biden a wannabe dictator, that stung. So you've got to wonder, if you're being honest with yourself, is Joe Biden a wannabe dictator? That question came up yesterday at the White House briefing. Here's how it went. Last night, um, Fox News ran a chyron that uh, referred to the president as a wannabe dictator, and I'm wondering if the White House has any comment on that. So look, there are probably about 787 million things that I can say about this uh, that was wrong uh, about what we saw last night, but I don't think I'm going to get into it. There's no comment the White House has on I think I just commented. Oh, no comment necessary. Of course Joe Biden's not a wannabe dictator. Just because he's trying to put the other candidate in prison for the rest of his life for a crime he himself committed doesn't mean he has a totalitarian impulse. Come on, that's absurd. It takes a lot more than jailing your political rivals to earn the title wannabe dictator. That's the consensus in Washington tonight. And in some ways, for once, the consensus may be right. It is not a small thing to be a wannabe dictator. It's quite a process. There are a lot of steps. First off, there is the money. The one thing that all dictators have in common is they enrich themselves and their families, their tribe, even as the countries they govern grow steadily poorer and more desperate. They take kickbacks from businesses and from other dictators. They use the official functions of their government to funnel cash to themselves. They don't bother to hide the fruits of this. They live in garish mansions with big lawns far from the teeming cities even as their own citizens languish in growing poverty, in some cases, literally living in tents on the street. So they don't really hide it, it's all pretty blatant. And ordinary people resent it. Of course they do, and wannabe dictators know they resent it, but they don't care. There's nothing the population can do about it in a dictatorship. It's no longer possible to fight injustice in a system like that. People can't gather in large numbers to protest the rule of the dictator. If they try that, they'll be arrested by his state security services, even years after the fact. A visit for men in body armor at the breakfast table, that happens. And if citizens persist in believing they can gather in groups to protest, they may be shot to death, a bullet to the throat. And then, just to make the humiliation complete, to make the lesson gin clear to everyone else watching, their relatives can be arrested for daring to complain that their children were killed for complaining. So I looked up the definition of dictator, by the way. <laughs> you know, so there's more to what Tucker Carlson has to say there in that clip I just played for you. But I looked up the definition of dictator. And here is what I find from Oxford Languages. A dictator is a ruler with total power over a country, typically one who has obtained control by force. In ancient Rome, the dictator was a chief magistrate with absolute power appointed in an emergency. The second definition, however, may be more agreeable to more of us, more apparent, more obvious. A dictator is a person who behaves in an autocratic way. Autocratic here may also need to be defined. Autocratic, also according to Oxford languages, relates to a ruler who has absolute power taking no account of other people's wishes or opinions, domineering. 
So if you are autocratic, you are domineering. You dominate other people who object instead of listening to them, instead of hearing their concerns, considering those, negotiating, compromising, giving some concessions. When you're autocratic, you try and overpower and dominate and shut the other person up, shut them down, or else overrule them, run them over, steamroll them. That's what a dictator does. That's how you know somebody aspires to be a dictator. Now you could say, well, Joe Biden's not technically a dictator. Yeah, but that's why the Chiron said, want to be dictator. That's why the 27 second long Chiron on Fox News said he's a wannabe dictator and he clearly is acting like one. You could say, well, he never said he wanted to be a dictator. Yeah, how many do? How many do say they want to be a dictator? It's not what they say about their aspirations, not what they claim. The state propaganda in China or North Korea or Iran or Russia never says that those fearless leaders who rule those countries with an iron fist want to be dictators. No, no, they're benevolent rulers. They are the father to their country. They are the protector. This is for your own good. We are doing this for your own good observing and monitoring your every move, your every word to make sure that you're protected from yourself. But if I go on over to Wikipedia, I find perhaps a little more substance for the purposes of our discussion, our comprehension, our understanding here. Wikipedia says a dictator is a political leader who possesses absolute power. A dictatorship is a state ruled by one dictator or by a small clique The word originated as the title of a Roman dictator elected by the Roman Senate to rule the Republic in times of emergency. Like the term tyrant and to a lesser degree autocrat, dictator came to be used almost exclusively as a non-titular term for oppressive rule. In modern usage, the term dictator is generally used to describe a leader who holds or abuses an extraordinary amount of personal power. Dictatorships are often characterized by some of the following. Suspension of elections and civil liberties, proclamation of a state of emergency, rule by decree, repression of political opponents, not abiding by the procedures of the rule of law, and the existence of a cult of personality centered on the leader. Dictatorships are often one-party or dominant party states. A wide variety of leaders coming to power in different kinds of regimes, such as one-party or dominant party states and civilian governments under a personal rule, have been described as dictators. Now, What you should think in relation to Joe Biden and the Democrats, what you should think to yourself is that it's not just official hard power that runs countries anymore. Again, go back to Edward Bernays. His book, Propaganda, is worth a read. It goes very well with Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. It also is a continuation of Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince. And both works are inspired to a great extent, but different. They're more scientific. They're more modern. They're more up-to-date than The Prince. Edward Bernays, as detailed in The Century of the Self, that BBC docuseries I was telling you about earlier, explains how it is that these political forces and political operatives and political leaders today accomplish their objectives. They do it by nudging you in the direction of making the choices that they want you to make. They would call the the decisions that they want you to make. Those are good choices. 
The decisions they don't want you to make are bad choices. This is not very different from the divine right of kings theory, which led to ultimately Magna Carta. It led to an English civil war and the king being forced to sign by the nobles. He was harassing and campaigning against, forced to sign Magna Carta, the great charter. This is not that different. What Joe Biden is acting like, what he is doing in sicking the Department of Justice and the FBI on Trump. Obama and Biden, in the run-up to the 2016 election, sicking the intelligence agencies of the United States of America on their political opponent is not that different from how dictators have always acted in other contexts. It's not that different, but it is very different from the vision of shared rule, shared power, deliberative checks and balances, representative government that the founding fathers envisioned. And this is also why in a dictatorship, you will very often have a rewriting of history so as to make everything revolve around this glorious leader having delivered the people, protected the people from the oppressive past. Because they are so about themselves, they can brook no admiration for a competing idea, no entertaining of a competing idea or a competing legacy. And so it's not enough to go after political opponents in the present. They also want to exhume the bodies of political opponents from history. They want to exhume the bodies and the legacies of the men who have gone before them and savage the same and desecrate the same. This is also known as death works. So death works is important symbolically as a way of creating a negative association with something you have traditionally, culturally revered or respected highly. A death work is a way of destroying psychologically some institution or person which is in the way or which is competing with your aspirations, your agenda. Now, this isn't always a bad thing, right? We see this in the Old Testament, for instance, when God's people are going in and driving out the peoples of the nations that God is dispossessing of Canaan. What are they doing? They're tearing down the altars to these false gods. In some cases, they're actually exhuming, they're digging up the false priests and false prophets of those false gods, and they are destroying their graves, they're destroying their bodies, they're tearing down the places of worship to those false gods. That's a kind of death works, but it works the other direction too. When the worshipers of Baal or Moloch are ascendant, what do they do? They try to do the exact same thing right back. They try to tear down the worship of Yahweh God because Yahweh is regarded as an enemy. The worshipers of Yahweh, the servants of Yahweh, the people of Yahweh are regarded as an enemy. And so also in an American context, we have to understand that gay pride, the LGBTQ month of the year, they get a whole month. Fathers get one day. Tomorrow is Father's Day. Fathers get one day. The homosexuals, bisexuals, transgendered people, queers, they get a full month thanks to Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Joe Biden. 
They get invited to the White House. They get celebrated with a flag of triumph and colonization, which is not just being flown over the White House. It's not just being flown over veteran cemeteries. It's being flown at our embassies around the world as a way of communicating there's a new sheriff in town. Who's the sheriff? Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the dictator. He's the wannabe dictator. He can't do all that he wishes he could do, but boy, howdy, is he working on it? And are the people who handle him working on it? Because in actual fact, the dictators here are not known to us so much as their household name is known to us. Their big guy is known to us. So the big question here is not, is Joe Biden the kind of character who would be a dictator? The answer is yes. But that's not actually the point. The point is, are the people who manage him and write the words on the teleprompter and set his agenda and decide who he's going to call on among the reporters during a press conference, are those people capable of desiring to, aspiring to be dictators? And the answer is unequivocally, yes. Yes, they are. And they have demonstrated that. It's not conjecture. It's not hypothetical. It's not theory. It's not speculation. It's an observed fact. But to Tucker Carlson's point, the 10-year veteran Fox News producer has to be fired. Why? Because Fox News is not actually conservative. Because Fox News is controlled opposition as just another way of protecting us from opportunity, from prosperity, from having equal authority in a competition for resources and political power, Fox News is a Judas goat. And Tucker Carlson knows that. He was their most popular talent and they took away his show. And now they're trying to take legal action to shut him up on Twitter as well. Why? Because they're, <laughs> they're actually really all about themselves. And they don't like the kinds of things that he's saying. And they don't like that he is far more popular now that he's out on his own than he ever was with them. Because that, that hurts, right? That is a hard pill to swallow when this is all just a vanity project. When this is all selfish ambition and vain conceit. If he's more popular than he ever was striking out on his own, you can't have that. You can't have Tucker Carlson racking up 60 million views on Twitter, even as your shows are losing viewers left and right. Which brings us to our final story for this episode. Some reporting by Matt Walsh, a Twitter thread, which has been a very explosive story for the last couple of days. But Joel Abbott posted to not to be some screenshots and embedded some additional tweets, more than what I was finding in the Daily Wire posts about this that I was trying to check out. I need the embedded tweets because I'm still not on Twitter. I'm still banned from Twitter. My 12-hour suspension is now, what, 15 months and counting? <laughs> all because I said, with all due respect at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. And it was. It was a retarded thing to say. Literally retarding. But Joel Abbott tweets out, what the heck is happening over at Fox News? 
check out this wild thread with leaked employee portal data from Matt Walsh. So it's essentially what you have here is you've got Fox News employees leaking screenshots and stories and accounts to Matt Walsh, which is just surreal, right? Fox News. Fox News, a news organization you would expect should be able, if they're not ashamed of this, they should be able to report on their own internal happenings. But of course, they're not going to because, of course, they don't want the people who still think Fox News is conservative to know that Fox News is the fox guarding the hen house. But here's Matt Walsh, and Matt Walsh doesn't need to curry favor with Fox News. He doesn't need to stay in their good graces. The Daily Wire is increasingly a competitor, and I think that websites like The Blaze and Fox News and Not The Bee and The Epoch Times are increasingly going to take all of Fox News's market share, especially with stories like this. But here's the first tweet, the leading tweet posted out June 15th, 3.30 p.m. One, breaking. We've obtained internal docs from Fox News employees. Fox Corp is celebrating pride by encouraging employees to read about glory holes, supporting a group that gives sterilizing hormones to homeless youth, and they deployed woke AI to monitor everyone. Explicit content ahead. Tweet number two. The documents we're about to show you were produced by Fox Corp, which is the parent company of Fox News. These materials are presented to Fox News employees when they log into their employee portal. Let's start at the top. That's all I've got. Those two tweets are all I've got of this Twitter thread. But what we have in the rest of this write-up from Not The Bee is screenshots. Screenshots of Fox News saying support one another and encouraging their employees to donate to the Trevor Project, Ali Forney Center, and the LA LGBT Center. For Pride Month, Fox News is telling their employees they're proud, right? Proud with all caps, proud to partner with Benevity to bring forth a double match campaign with charitable organizations dedicated to creating space, celebrating and uplifting the LGBTQIA plus community. Above this section, encouraging employees to donate is a paragraph on progress. Proud of progress is what the heading is. That paragraph reads as follows. The iconic rainbow pride flag has been used since 1978 as a symbol of love, acceptance, and harmony for the LGBTQ plus community. In 2018, the pride flag was redesigned by Daniel Kazar to reflect the evolving pride community by including a five-striped chevron to the left side of the flag representing LGBTQ plus people of color and the trans community. Dubbed the Progress Pride Flag, the new design has proliferated in the community and has become the staple symbol of inclusivity and representation. Translation, Fox News is all in on the woke stuff. And they're encouraging their employees to be all in on the woke stuff. Even as a 10-year veteran producer is fired for putting the Chiron up for 27 seconds, referring to Joe Biden as a wannabe dictator who just had his rival 
candidate for president in the 2024 election, his leading political rival, arrested. That guy gets fired while behind the scenes, Fox News, Fox Corp, is promoting wokeness to their employees. Let me say this once and for all. Nobody should be watching Fox News from here on out. Nobody. Nobody. Shut it down. They should not ever be trusted again as a news organization. They're traitors. They are pretenders. They're fakes. They're phonies. They're at Fox News. That doesn't mean every single person, don't get me wrong, but the organization, the institution cannot be trusted. This is the equivalent of finding out that Benedict Arnold in the American Revolution, the American War for Independence, finding out that Benedict Arnold was giving the plans and secrets of the colonial forces and their forts to the British, and he was going to try and help the British behind the scenes secretly to take American forts and to win the war for independence or the war against independence or the war of dependence, I suppose, from the British perspective in that context. This is the equivalent of finding out that Benedict Arnold was secretly aiding and abetting the British, even as he was an American general, a colonial army general. This is like that. Now you can forgive Benedict Arnold perhaps as a good Christian, but don't you ever, ever, ever trust him again. Don't you ever put him in a position of authority again. And if you get your hands on him, he needs to be in a jail cell while he awaits a trial and consequences. Fox News should never, ever, ever, ever be trusted again to be the voice of conservatives, to be the crafter of the narrative for conservatives. And what bothers me about this, what concerns me, is there are so many boomers who get their conservative news from Fox News, and they have been for years, and Fox News has been whispering sweet nothings in the donor class of American conservatives' ears for years and years. And what has that translated into? Fox News writes the song, writes the writes the tune that these conservatives, older conservative Americans, are going to sing and dance to. And so then who are these older conservative Americans not going to support and not going to donate their monies to in the way of young, up-and-coming conservative leaders, commentators, or political candidates? Who are these older Americans not going to support whoever Fox News doesn't want them to support? Because if you're relying on Fox News to tell you who you should be supporting, and behind the scenes, they're as woke as can be, they're either A, going to want very similar to the Democrats trying to get the most unhinged as they see it, the most radical, easy to beat, scary Republican candidates to win their primaries. Just like that, Fox News can absolutely, for years and years and years now, highlight and amplify the Republicans that they think are going to be easy to beat and completely ignore or else run hit pieces on. Very subtle, and it looks different. It always looks different when it's against conservatives compared with against progressives and leftists, but run these very subtle hit pieces 
where you tell the donor class, you tell the boomers in particular who have the money to give, to donate, you tell them who does and doesn't have a chance. Not the one who could actually take this ball and run with it. No, no, don't support him. Don't donate to his campaign. Don't listen to him. Come on back. Come come on back. We'll show you a pretty blonde with nice makeup and jewelry and a tasteful amount of cleavage. We'll come back to your conservative ideas here in a minute. But first, let's bombard you with change of subject after change of subject, because this is actually propaganda, and this is actually operant conditioning, and this is actually brainwashing. And this is, oh, by the way, this is why I do the long-form podcast thing, because I believe that's what it's going to take to undo the damage done by the corporate news media and the public education system. It's going to take rolling up our sleeves and doing long, hard thinking and reasoning and reading and deliberating. We can't keep on like this. We can't continue on down this road. Fox News needs to go the way of the dinosaurs. Thousands of years from now, somebody should be brushing away some dirt in the desert somewhere, finding giant bones with a Fox logo on them, as far as I'm concerned. And instead, what needs to take the place of controlled opposition and the woke pseudo-conservatives is people like Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles and Tim Pool, people like Ali Beth Stuckey and Candace Owens. That's who you should be checking out and supporting and trying to encourage more young people to be like and helping to facilitate. So long as you're tuning into a Fox News, you're going to keep on losing because ultimately that's what they're there for. (laughs) That's what they're there for is to make sure that you have a slow, long, drawn out defeat, but you're very entertained while you're being defeated. In closing, I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness and grace and keeping no record of wrongs and how all of that should play into these kinds of stories, these kinds of situations on the macro or on the very personal. So we had biblical training group last night and our discussion, our conversation during group centered on the business of conversion, regeneration, and justification. Dr. Gary Brashears from Western Seminary giving lecture 27 in A Guide to Christian Theology. We watched the video and then we discussed one particular thing he said, which was of interest to me, where he said, you know, some people will say that justification works like this, that when God sees me, he doesn't actually see me. It's just as if I had never sinned he sees Jesus. He sees Christ. And Gary Brashear says, I don't think that's quite correct. I think that's reading too much into the text. I think that's going too far with it. There are passages that people will cite to make that kind of a claim, but that's that's not quite accurate. For God to remember our sins no more does not mean that he literally does not know that we have sinned. Justification is a legal pronouncement, as in a court of law God has declared us righteous, 
as if we were cleared of all charges, as if the case were thrown out against us because of the blood of Jesus. We've been ransomed, we've been redeemed, and therefore we are declared innocent. But God knows that we sinned. He still knows that. And we were talking about this over our group discussion last night. And I'll back up a little bit and just say, last week, we got into a little bit of discussion about whether we as Christians have a responsibility to forgive those who have sinned against us if they have not apologized, confessed, repented, asked for forgiveness. Do we have a responsibility to forgive? And two passages were brought up, which are fair to bring up, and it's a good point. Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, I might ask, who's he referring to? Is he referring to everybody who is crucifying him, everybody who has led up to this moment, or is it possible he's referring to his own disciples who have tucked tail and run because they're panicked, they're terrified, they're afraid. But setting that aside, a less easy example to explain with that would be Stephen in the book of Acts, the stoning of Stephen, the first deacon or one of the first deacons in the early church chosen because there was some question as to partiality with the distribution of aid to widows, those who were Hellenistic Jews versus those who had stayed in Israel, in Palestine, and not gone out into the Greek and Roman world. Stephen is stoned after delivering this bold and clear and compelling gospel presentation and call for repentance. He is stoned to death, and as he is being stoned to death, he prays, Father, forgive them. Very similar to the prayer of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, who's he referring to? It would seem very obviously he's referring to those who are stoning him to death right then and there. And so the question was asked, well, (laughs) who was apologizing as they were stoning or as they were crucifying either Stephen or Jesus before Stephen? And that's a good point. But here's part of what I want to unpack in a future episode in greater detail, because this is very important. It's very, very important that we get this right and we think rightly about it. And I can't guarantee that we're all going to, or that I even will always, God will see us through and help us to understand if we're in error in anything. That That's true for me. That's true for you as well. I just want to be faithful in studying to show myself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And I want to give you at least not any trouble in coming to the right conclusion. I want to do all I can to help you come to the right conclusion. I want to come to the right conclusion on this as well. I look at the example of Numbers chapter 27. As God is taking Moses up onto the mountain of Abiram, to look into the promised land and see it. God reminds Moses of his sin. God reminds Moses of his sin. And the consequences are not forgiveness in a certain sense. And here's what we could ask. We could say, well, how much is different from how God is relating to Moses here and how we should relate to one another? I'm glad you asked. And I won't get into this exhaustively in this episode, but I do want to draw your attention to Matthew 6, 12. 
Part of the Lord's Prayer, a very important, relevant part of the Lord's Prayer is, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, what's key about this is there is a parallel that we are told to observe and we are told to pray in observing with regards to forgiveness. In fact, in verse 14, we see Jesus expanding on this point. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, stay with me for a moment here. Does God forgive us regardless of whether we have repented, regardless whether we have confessed? Are we forgiven or is faith by grace through faith coupled with confession of Jesus Christ as our Lord and confession of our sins and repentance and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, is that actually inseparable from forgiveness? It's very clear to me that the answer is yes throughout the whole counsel of God. And it's very clear to me that we are told to forgive as we have been forgiven. How have we been forgiven? We've been forgiven when we confess and repent. Should we forgive in a practical sense in the manner of not holding it against somebody, not causing them to suffer consequences when and where God does not forgive? This is an important question. The implications, if we say, yes, we should just immediately forgive anybody and everybody who sins against us and not make anybody suffer any negative consequences whatsoever, the implications are profound for disciplining our children, running an organization, doing church together. What does church discipline look like if to discipline somebody for unrepented of sin in a church, to put them out of fellowship as we're commanded to, and as we see examples to in 1 Corinthians, for instance, if you can't do that because that would demonstrate unforgiveness and that would be keeping a record of wrongs. Now, to my friend's point, who was arguing in the opposite direction and saying, no, you've got to let that stuff go. You've got to forgive. We're commanded to forgive. Otherwise, it's going to eat us from the inside and it's going to rob us of our joy as Christians. I say, well, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between forgiveness. Forgiveness is not first and foremost, I am going to repent of my emotions about what you have done. Forgiveness is I am not going to try and get repayment or vengeance, or I am not going to try and punish you for this thing. If I look at the parable of the unforgiving servant who owed a large sum of money and it was forgiven, what does it mean that it was forgiven? It doesn't mean that the king didn't remember that there had been a debt that was not paid back. It doesn't mean that the king had no emotional response or reaction at all. It surely bothered him that this money had been borrowed and not repaid. It surely bothered him. But on the other hand, he was asked for forgiveness. Please forgive me. And he gave it. And so maybe there's an emotional release that comes with it, but the emotional release is secondary. The consequences in a material way, in a practical way, that's primary. The emotional piece is secondary. The practical piece is primary in my way of understanding forgiveness. Now, we are commanded, not given the option. It's not just if you want to, if you feel like it, when it's convenient. You know, it would be really great. 
We're commanded to put away wrath and bitterness and to never avenge ourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God. But there's a difference between avenging yourself and giving appropriate consequences. And even appropriate consequences need to be contrasted with forgiveness. Because to give negative consequences for bad behavior is to what end? I would say in God's economy, either to do justice and to deliver those who are being oppressed on the one hand from their oppressors. So you're dispensing justice on an oppressive, tyrannical, despotic, villainous, predatory, evil, corrupt person to protect their would-be victims. Or you're giving negative consequences as a way of trying to bring contrition. And in a parental context, you would say, I'm trying to bring contrition to the heart of my child so that they repent of this attitude and this behavior, this way of relating that is bad. It's sinful or it's foolish or it's disrespectful or it's dangerous. I want them to repent of this thing. And so I'm going to apply a corrective to actually create a negative association with this behavior. Because what if I don't do that? Here's the other side of the coin. Here's the other side of the coin that's very important to the question of forgiveness and what we are and are not called to as Christians. If I don't apply negative consequences, but I keep on giving positive consequences, I may be an enabler. And I may actually reward bad behavior and thereby make it harder for this person who is engaging in the sin and folly to repent. I may actually be a party to and culpable for their continued sin and folly. Now I'm an accomplice. Now, if I'm just neutral and I say, well, I feel nothing, right? I feel nothing towards you, neither good nor bad, neither hate nor love. That's what forgiveness means is I just, I feel dead inside in relation to you. I don't think that's forgiveness. I don't think that's correct. And I don't think that should be our aspirational model. I don't think that should be our goal. Feel the feelings, feel the emotion and put away the anger as fast as you possibly can, even if it's righteous anger. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. But if we are too fast to extend the right hand of fellowship and to forgive, we risk ignoring everything that Jesus says about bewaring of false teachers, being wise as serpents. What's the point of being wise as serpents? If you're not going to categorize some people as serpents and remember and cause them to have consequences, negative consequences in relation to you and other people that you can warn. There are people, there are Christians who would say, if you are giving any kind of negative consequences, that proves that you haven't forgiven that person. So what do you do? If somebody's a false teacher, like that pastor in Kenya over the doomsday starvation death cult, hundreds of people, hundreds of followers not just starving them not not just starving themselves to death also horrifically starving their children to death and you say you need to forgive that man no 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 not so fast will god forgive that man apart from repentance i i think he's probably too far gone i think god knows for sure but he obviously has a seared conscience and satan has possessed him is a false prophet, a false pastor, if he is unrepentant, if he is maintaining his position that this was good and right and this is what Christ would have him to do, he doesn't need forgiveness 
And I don't believe that God calls me to forgive him. I believe he needs very, very strong consequences. Uh, Actually, I think he needs the death penalty because he's a mass murderer. If you want to know the truth, he deserves the death penalty. And may God have mercy on his soul if God so chooses. Now let's bring this back to what we've been talking about in this episode. If it comes to light that a lot of the institutions that we were raised in and with that were not built by us and we haven't been given a lot of latitude to be able to affect them. In fact, there's been quite a lot of roadblocking put up to keep us from creating new institutions and having those be successful and competitive against the traditions of the institutions of the boomers. If it turns out that the transgenderism push is very similar to the Kenyan doomsday starvation death cult, the people who are not repentant, we have to know what to do with them. As it becomes clear that the left propping up Joe Biden has been able and willing to and eager to and committed to wreaking unspeakable havoc on mind, body, and soul of millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of not just present-day Americans, but also generations to come, and they're not repentant, and there's a potential for bringing accountability, we have to know where and when it's appropriate to forgive our enemies. Do good, right? Be kind, be gracious, be loving. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Maybe, just maybe, you will win over your enemy by your good behavior. Absolutely. Don't overcome evil with evil. Overcome the evil with the good. But it would be good if these evil enemies of ours were brought to justice, if they won't repent. If we can forgive them and have them restored, great. If they're unrepentant, they should get the full weight and measure of justice. And I don't believe for a moment that that is out of step with following Christ, imitating Christ, being an imitator of God, being holy for God is holy. I think actually that's the fulfillment that is so badly missing. It's so absent from the mainstream evangelical Christian American expression. It's so needed that we would have a balanced view here. So I say, if Fox News turns out to be the fox guarding the hen house, it's not unloving, it's not unforgiving for the conservative Christian viewership, viewing audience to say, all right, Fox News has got to go. And whatever happens, you you can feel bad for people losing their jobs. In a certain sense, you can feel a pity for them, while at the same time regarding it as totally just and necessary to never forget that Fox News was caught doing this and acting this way. Never forget the folks who have encouraged children to take puberty blockers and hormone therapy and to go through gender reassignment surgeries. Never forget that they did that. But if they repent and they ask forgiveness, forgive, forgive, just as our Father in heaven has forgiven us. And we've sinned against him far more than these people have sinned against us. We must forgive. We must forgive from our heart if they've asked forgiveness. If they haven't, well then, just like we would still be at enmity with God, they're still at enmity with us. We're still going to do good to them, just like our Father in heaven 
sends his reins on the just and the unjust. We're still going to give a kind of common grace and we're going to put away, we might feel it, but we're going to put it away, put it away to the side so that we're not swayed by it, so that we don't become corrupted, anger and wrath and bitterness. I want this to be very clear. This is my position. This is what I believe is correct. And if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, then help me to understand and to be more correct. But I can't look at the whole situation with Moses having the leadership over the people taken away from him. I can't look at that as God forgiving him in the sense that many of us have been conditioned to believe we are required to forgive. I think there's a lawless quality to the kind of forgiveness that many of us as Christians have been taught is necessary to be a good Christian. I think there's a lawless quality. There's a permissive quality. There's an ungodly quality to it. And I know my friend, my my friend I was talking with last night that I'm referring to, he doesn't hold that there should be no consequences, no negative consequences. But my point would be, I think we maybe are not meaning forgiveness in the same way. I, I think we maybe don't define this term the same way. For the sake of your own spiritual health, your own joyfulness, your own relationship with God and one another, your own resisting of the temptation to sin, let go of the anger and the wrath, but make a mental note that this is not okay. And take measures. Go to that person individually. If they're a brother in Christ, go to them individually, privately, make your case. If they won't listen, take along witnesses. If they won't listen, take them to the church. If they won't listen, treat them like you would a tax collector. That is, avoid them. It's okay for us to confront sin. It's okay and necessary for us to offer up negative consequences for sin. It's also very necessary if somebody asks for forgiveness, if they repent, they confess their sin. It's very necessary for us to forgive. Very necessary. So that there can be restoration. And God is pleased by that. God is honored by that. Now, sometimes there might still be consequences. In the case of Moses, maybe he was contrite and repentant, and he still was not allowed to come into Israel or the promised land, what would be Israel thereafter. And instead, very similar to Aaron being defrocked, passing on the mantle of the priestly leadership to his son Eleazar, very similar. You have Moses passing on the mantle of leadership to Joshua. And it's a new day. It's a very big deal when this happens. And can I just leave you with this thought? I think a similar thing is about to happen generationally in the United States of America. And we should embrace that. We should know what to do with it, what to make of it, and how to make the most of it for God's glory and for one another's benefit. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.